0: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.
1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where you either get busy living or get busy dying. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. You can also listen to publicrealityradio at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio is my fellow doubtcaster, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. And that's it. That's it. Uh, Jeremy is out sick today. Well. So I'm, he says. I'm
2: not going to say there's a connection. Today we're going to do our episode on prison and crime and such. <laughs> I'm not saying there's a connection. No, no, no.
1: Of course not. Um, but Jeremy will be in the show later with his interview with Grand Valley State University professor, uh, your colleague, Dr. Professor, Mike DeWild. will be here talking about a prison ministry of a different kind. Today's show is all about prison. We're going to be talking some God thinks like you about the efficacy of religion in rehabilitation and What, pre-rehabilitation? Would that be a a good way of putting it?
2: Prehab. I don't even know if that's a (laughs) word. That's before you even go into rehab, you have prehab. That's
1: right. We've got some props and shit list and, of course, a stranger than fiction about porn. Uh, First off, though, on this prison show, let's talk about a very famous inmate who had a rather famous conversion, in prison. Yeah, this caught my
2: eye. Some of you uh, younger listeners probably don't remember it, but the older listeners, who are, if you're around in the 70s, you've heard about the son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz. This was in uh, in the mid-70s. There was a spree of shootings. So I guess you'd call it what's a serial killer or a spree killer where he killed numerous people. But uh, he has been in prison, obviously, for his crimes. Uh, the, the son of Sam killer, by the way, is so named because he cited his motivation to kill as partially related to the fact that the neighbor's dog was sending him messages and sometimes this is common in in psychosis where you have delusions of other people controlling your thoughts or inserting thoughts and so the uh the notion there was that he was acting upon orders to kill passed
1: through the uh neighbor's dog that pa- passed from a black labrador retriever yes
2: see my usually my animals send me notions like get me food but uh pick up a 44 magnum is you know you want to check on that. You know, are you sure?
1: Yeah, the, the usual messages are a little bit more mundane than that. But uh, he, he's infamous for causing quite a problem in the area. Um, uh, Spike Lee did a movie ah, yes. about this. Summer of Sam. Summer of Sam.
2: About the, uh, that whole uh, tension of the period where you never knew. Because he often he would approach people who were out parking or he would yes. find some uh, couples in cars in deserted areas and uh, come up to the car and then start blasting away.
1: Yeah, and he killed um, six people and wounded seven others through this um, summer of 1977. And I'm forgetting now his target was either – Blonde women, uh, typically he was he was going after blonde women or brunette women. And as portrayed in the, the movie Summer of Sam, um, women desperately changed their hair color so that they <laughs> wouldn't be be victims oh, of, uh, of David Berkowitz.
2: He had uh, been in prison. What, what caught my eye was a story that I'd seen in the New York Times where he uh, now has had sort of a – I guess you'd call it an image makeover. Oh, big time. Where uh, he had – Undergone supposedly a conversion in prison to Christianity. And this had made its way around the rounds around other evangelical groups. In fact, he had been interviewed via radio on a Focus on the Family show in Focus 2003. Focus on the
1: Family. You know, always supporting the good guys.
2: Always looking for the, yes, the silver lining there. And the... Um, and so he had some increasing publicity because they hold him forward as being somebody who's an example of somebody who's turned his life around in prison via a religious conversion.
1: Right, right. And he actually converted to Christianity quite early on in his prison sentence. Um, he's sentenced to 25 years to life and was Convicted in seven, – well, 77 is when the, the murders happened, I believe. 78 is when he was finally uh, convicted, and he became a born-again Christian 23 years ago. Yes. So if you're doing your math, too um, – It wasn't it, long after. It was not long after, and my initial response from this was he went from one delusional worldview to another. <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know that that's far off the mark. You know, it may be a little glib, but not so much.
2: Well, you can uh, – I guess listeners could judge for themselves about the sincerity of it. He has uh, – his journals have been publicized now. He has people with his story on websites like they're calling – his
1: the book version of his journals is called The Son of Hope. Son of Hope. Yeah. So nice. you
2: could move from Sam to Hope. Um, and uh,
1: Which he, is also the name of a dog.
2: That's right. and hope, his, hope webs, his website is now – is called Arise and Shine. Uh, and so they, basically they, they're promoting him as, as, a, as a textbook example of somebody who's a, a jail
1: convert. He's been saved by the love of Jesus.
2: But uh, as you might imagine then, uh, this, this is controversial because many people think either his conversion is somehow bogus or motivated at the least by – a desire to, you know, get out earlier, to have a good impression. It sounds like he's been doing a lot of good works in prison and has good behavior and that's not in dispute, but I guess still some people are wondering, like it's easy to do these things when you get a lot of reinforcement from the outside of people publicizing your case. And you can imagine what that's going to look like if, you know, when he comes up for his
1: parole, which I would think would be pretty soon. Yeah. If he's 25 years to life And, and, and when you mentioned that he's been doing some good works while in prison, Uh, A lot of that's prison ministry. He's written some tracts that have been distributed around the world. Um, He also, uh, according to an article from the New York Times, says most days he works as a mobility guide, helping disabled inmates get around and assists mentally ill inmates who may need a hand with daily activities and those who have difficulty reading or writing, which is – That's nice. Yeah, that's that's very nice. Uh, Of course, people doubt the sincerity of this conversion and – it doesn't get into it in this article in the New York Times, but one important factor of the David Berkowitz case for conversion is from the time he was arrested till today, he has said that he did not act alone. He, he now calls himself a murderer. I don't know that he's ever given a specific accounting of which murders he's taking responsibility for and attempted murders, but he's claimed that he was part of a satanic cult uh, the, satanic the satanic cult. The uh, satanic cult. You got to love the satanic cult defense, right? And that there were other people. He um, even in, his, in 1978 already was alluding to other sons out there and God helped the world um, because it, it wasn't just him. And, and there are some people out there who believe that this might be the case, although I'm not seeing any evidence for it. The satanic cult thing, we've talked about this on the show before. It's mm-hmm. so overblown.
2: Yeah, that was big in the uh in the 80s and late 70s, uh, and, and early 80s, to the yeah. mid 90s with yeah. all the uh, daycare abuse things in California. They had a string of of cult uh, cult rings where a lot of people were incarcerated because they right. uh, essentially it was a modern witch hunt.
1: In fact, I watched a wonderful documentary called Witch Hunt. I saw that. Did you?
2: And about, uh, was Bakersfield, California? Yes. yes. Yep.
1: Bakersfield, California, where they had, um, oh god, it was half a dozen parents who, and a zealous child prosecutor molestation,
2: who yep. kind of just vacuumed up person after person. So there was a lot of, you know, there's, that was in vogue at the time to imagine that there's bands of roving satanic people looking for your babies and such.
1: Right. Um, and, and at some point on the show, because I don't think we've ever really done this, I, we'll have to, talk maybe to a real Satanist and talk about the Church of Satan because they're not. Well, they're you can not. look through your
2: Rolodex. Uh, yeah, or... yeah.
1: They don't worship Satan. In, in, anyway, uh, getting uh, uh, off the track here a little bit. But uh, he has – he's claimed that he you know got wrapped up in this satanic cult and that other people were involved. But to this day, he will not say who those other people were. He's saying for, for the safety of his own family. Either he was fully responsible for these murders, which seems to be the case, and he's not – still not acknowledging that. He's still not taking responsibility for what he did or there really is this other group of people who were involved in one way or another – that he's still not willing to go to the authorities and say these are the I hope
2: that, that issue comes up when he does have his parole hearing then about his
1: – yeah, they usually assess the
2: person's respo- taking responsibility for their crime. Absolutely. And remorsefulness and all that.
1: So he can love the Jesus all he wants, but if he's not really taking responsibility for his crimes, is it really rehabilitation?
2: Well, that brings up the broader issue of, of rehab I think in general of uh, – as many listeners know, there are programs in – in prisons now to reduce recidivism and, and reform inmates. And so a lot of people are looking for that magic bullet. And no surprise, many people turn to religious content to do that. And, uh, you know, this the son of Sam case is certainly not isolated in that people assume that there's some sort of you know connection between people finding God in prison and their ability to turn their lives
1: around. And so a number of groups are pushing for more religion in prison. And there have been a number of court cases about this because here in the U.S. we have a little thing that we like to call the separation of church and state.
2: That's not in the Constitution.
1: No, it's in the Bill of Rights. Um, Not the phrase, but the sentiment. For example, Americans United for the separation of church and state, great organization. We kind of love them. Uh, Americans United filed suit in Southern District of Iowa challenging the Interchange Freedom Initiative. We'll be talking about them a Yay, lot today. Isn't that from Chuck Colson? The, the former Watergate guy is, yeah, uh, is now a yeah. prison reformer. Which is which – is He um, should know. Yeah, right, right. Um, it's a publicly supported – which is always a problem anytime you have these religious faith-based groups that are paid for by public funding. It's a pervasively religious program in Iowa's Newton Correctional Facility. That means God is present in multiple stages and locations. That's right. Uh, Inmates who participate in IFI, the Interchange Freedom Initiative, uh, were housed in a separate prison unit where they were immersed in a 24-hour-per-day Christ-centered Bible-based programming.
2: I'm sure it was separate but equal to the other facilities?
1: Yeah, of course it was. Or not. And this is part of a broader movement which continues on to have – Faith segregated prisons. Just uh, very recently we have um, coming from May of this year uh, in Oklahoma. They're making uh, movements towards building an all Christian prison. That's the next step. Which is a huge omission, right there, isn't it? Like we have so many Christian prisoners that we need we need our own building to put them in. I'm
2: actually I, I actually look forward to that, so we so controlled studies could be done of somebody sent to the Christian prison versus the other prison. But
1: good point. But yeah,
2: uh, yeah I mean, the this this uh, but CFI uh, had a victory in this case in the court, or that that side had a victory. Yeah, in the, the the AU. In that the judge agreed that the case did in fact pose a lot of problems in terms of constitutionality and unfair treatment.
1: Because what you have, of course, when you have a religious program in a prison, you have government favoring a particular religious group.
2: Sure. And then the other uh, issue with that was that they had some statistics uh, purportedly showing that their program was better in terms of producing lower recidivism rates than people in – I guess you'd call it the control group, the people who weren't in the program.
1: But – yeah, this is this is really fantastic. This was an article from Slate.com. kind of blew me away, actually, with, with just how uh, slippery they were with their data from, from these studies.
2: If somebody would, wasn't expecting it, a layperson just looking at that data would be very impressed by the statistics.
1: Absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, speaking of laypeople, George W. Bush himself invited Chuck Colson to the White House for a, a photo op. Or back to the White House. Back to the, <laughs> From his Nixon days. Good point. Um, Which – that's such a layered photo. I would love to uh, um, just dissect all of the different connotations. Well, I'm not a crook. Chuck Colson shaking hands with George W. Bush. But he was invited to the White House to essentially celebrate the success of this program because they had – of their graduates in this program and it started out with 177, I want to say, inmates and they had a much – Lower rearrest rate than the control group. So that's, that's impressive, right? There you go. What else do you need to know? Well, you kind of need to know how they came up with those numbers, right? Apparently, the White House didn't care. The White House just looked at their press release and went, oh, okay, that's good.
2: Dave, Dave. You're thinking critically now.
1: Yeah. You know what happens when you do that. I I apologize for that. So Luke, what's what's the truth here? What's really happening with this program?
2: Yeah, actually I was I had this little tinge of uh, uh I had a little historical flashback because I used to do research into it wasn't prison uh, recidivism programs, but it was substance abuse treatment programs.
1: Uh, similar factors. It's
2: very similar in the, in the sense that when you want to do a study about the efficacy of a program, you, you know, mm-hmm. ideally want to measure people and have a control group who don't have that treatment. But right. that's not the only thing that you need to do. The other thing that you need to control for is how many people actually complete the program and also fully covering the people who drop out. Of the treatment.
1: And that's, that's our problem here, that right? That is the
2: key. Uh, because if you let's think of it this way, just make it simple and say they had 100 people who were in the program. Not all of those 100 people who started the program
1: finished the, finish the program. Mm-hmm.
2: Let's say it's two years later, I measure and see how many people have been rearrested. If I only measure the people who completed, You want to know what percentage of the original group stuck it out the whole time that you're measuring. Right.
1: And, of course, what does it mean to complete it?
2: One of the criteria in this case was were they lined up with a job when they left prison?
1: And, of course, we know from statistics that if you get a job, if you have some kind of stability outside of prison, you are less likely, regardless of whether or not you've been through a prison ministry – to be rearrested. Yeah, not only
2: because it causes you to have to be somewhere every day and, yeah. and you're earning money, but also probably it's a marker for some underlying stability thing that was there even beforehand. Absolutely. If you hold down a job, that means that you're somewhat, you know, you have a little bit more together than if you don't. But what this program apparently did was it only followed the inmates through who were at those very later stages, some of which, you know, the ones who ended up with jobs. Right. And so when they went back and looked at the people who didn't finish the program there, they were not surprisingly worse off than the people who did. Yes, they were. But not counted as being program members. Right,
1: because they didn't complete the program.
2: Now, you know, and it might not seem fair at first to say, well, they didn't complete the whole program, so they shouldn't be counted as a failure. In fact, that's what the people who were touting this program said, and that is that, hey, you can't ding us if they didn't. You know, go the whole time. And that
1: might be a compelling argument for a lot of people.
2: Sure. But part of a program's success is its ability to –
1: retain people.
2: Yeah. Think of the analogy. Another thing that came to mind was a lot of these weight loss programs where you see these things like, you know, yeah. the average weight loss was 30 pounds. When I look up at the studies about, you know, what what percentage of the people actually lost 30 pounds and kept mm-hmm. it off, you're talking like a fraction of the original sample. Absolutely. You know, so again, basically what you're doing in those cases is you're, you are, the phrase in the business is creaming. I guess it's cream of the crop. You just take uh, the people.
1: I wondered where that came from. Dave. Okay.
2: Th- that you are just taking the the best people, the ones the ideal candidates and calling them your – these are the people who we want you to focus on right. as being the, the program graduates. These
1: are the ones who are really involved with the study. So,
2: they're, so yeah, they're, they're correcting that maybe it shouldn't be held against them that, that some people were dropouts. But I could make any program – you could do almost anything and make it look successful if you are allowed to basically select the best candidates.
1: Yeah. If I had a, a program with 10 people in it – all I had to do is get one of them to be successful and claim a hundred percent success rate with the graduates of the program
2: sure and and where we do teaching and, and, and pedagogical work we, right. if we were given a class of like originally like 50 people and allowed to like look at their grades maybe give them a few sample assignments and just select like maybe 20 people out of that I could produce a class of geniuses because yeah. I would <laughs> sure. say you know I would say these are the best candidates for that it doesn't mean that I'm a good teacher that I'm doing something especially brilliant right. it means that you know I'm just made the the job a lot uh, easier after selecting those
1: people yeah and, and i don 't want to suggest it's not showing in the study that this program was the contributing factor that made people more likely to get we don't know we, we do don't know way we don 't know, but what we can see is that it didn't make them less likely to sure. be arrested in fact, they were more likely to be arrested. Not necessarily as a result of the program, but just, and maybe people who dropped out of the program were people who couldn't stick with things and, and, you know, would have a more difficult time getting a job and
2: yeah, that's oh what we God. see often in, uh, in things like substance abuse research. When you see that, like you know, AA works really well. you see these, and they point to these members that have been there for twenty years and they have yeah. their little chips. Well, those are the people who made it through uh, the arduous process of sobriety. The other people who didn't, they're not there. Right. And so, right. you know, like a, uh, after one year, I think only like maybe a quarter of AA people are the ones that are still, you know, are still coming back. The rest of them are lost. So, yeah, I mean, maybe there is something to the content of uh, of the program, but you don't get to do that in the business of program evaluation. You don't get to just
1: cherry-pick statistics like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and clearly from this study, religious education does not equal rehabilitation.
2: Sure, and and I think that that, uh, that's some data that people might not want to see, you know, because there is this tendency then to assume that like with this program here with the Chuck Colson Ministries, that that a dose of religion
1: is what the prisoners need. And, And it's disturbing how important a factor... I think this the supposed uh, rehabilitation by way of religious conversion is for parole hearings in, in a lot of prisons.
2: As we know, the thing to say to your parole hearing is is to get your best Morgan Freeman voice. And That's say right. It. I don't even know what that word means. I used to think I did. Well, this brings up, though, a broader issue of there seems to be, okay, we've established that there seems to be in the the mind of many policymakers, at least, if not also the general public, that doses of religion are good for people once they've committed a crime and to Mm -hmm. turn their lives around. I think this gets me uh, thinking, though, about that sort of morality, religion stereotype at an even earlier stage, and that is when somebody's being. uh, judged and sentenced as being a criminal. Does does religion play a
1: role at that point? Well, that's an intriguing question for this week's episode of God Thinks Like You. Uh, I
2: wanted to poke around a bit in some of this work. This is a, a, in the area of forensic psychology of mm-hmm. evaluating, you know, guilt and, and innocence and the psychological state of mind, but. What I want to talk about just at this point is the other way around of people evaluating other people's guilt and innocence. So like the minds of jurors and judges when they're making decisions about who should be sentenced for how long and sure. what should the penalties be. And uh, it's, I guess it shouldn't be any surprise, but religion plays a role at different stages of things like sentencing and penalties. Some of the research uh, shows that, um, in fact – Religion is complicated because it comes in many different forms, and when jurors are making their minds up, it depends on what type of religion you're looking at.
1: I, I was I was just going to ask. I mean, are I, my my gut feeling is at least in this country that Christians are going to. Um, Be looked more favorable than people who have converted to Islam like, say, Malcolm X, who in prison converted to Islam.
2: That's defendant characteristics. Uh, Many people also look at the characteristics of the people in the jury. As you've Mm. probably seen from countless movies, you can do jury selection and strike jurors. Uh, There are – I think the only basis to legally strike a juror – on characteristics is uh, it's illegal to do it on the basis of race or gender. You can't say right. I don't like that person because they're black or female, yeah. although
1: – But this, you can always come up with something.
2: This, yeah, you have uh, some no contest where you can just strike and don't have to give a reason, yeah. and that's one of the cases in the south where some of the many uh, prosecutions that have had juries where like you know half the potential jurors have been black. Uh, but then uh, the ones that actually make it through the trial – Magically, they've – most of them have been struck. But religion, you you, – it's fair game and so many people probe to see whether you are church-going or Mm -hmm. if you're Pentecostal. It's not just a straight-up religion, non-religion thing because many religions are more favorable towards, for example, the death penalty and others are not. So take like Catholics, for example, if – many strict Catholics – are uh, in the whole pro-life mode against the death penalty because they mm-hmm. view it as a means of life, although many people disagree with that. Right. Some – what the research shows is that some religious characteristics are are more punitive, lead to more punitive decisions and some less punitive. So for example, biblical literalism, to the extent that somebody believes the Bible is the literal word of God, right. those people do tend to be more pro-death penalty. Oh, yeah. They justify it through, I guess, Old Testament type things. Yeah. but. That's what they would say, although it probably is correlated with the conservatism or, sure. or you know, authoritarianism. But if you just simply ask people how important religion, like are you a religiously convicted person, uh, that's actually negatively associated with willingness to use the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's not just a one-to-one relationship. It depends on what type of religion the person is about what – how they view death penalty and punitiveness. The thing that's more I guess that that makes me more angry though is that um is that religion is often used by let's say the defense uh mm-hmm. to uh, to make a case for their defendant, uh, where they've, like we just talked about in the Son of Sam
1: case, it's a character witness.
2: Yeah, so you could say this person is a good church-going member of society, so mm. that they don't get as harsh of a sentence. It turns out, if the defense attorney uses the fact that the person is religious and just a generic or they've always been religious, they're church-going, that can actually backfire on a defendant. Really? In the in the sense that that Christian jury, uh, the, a study had shown that Christian um, mock jurors were actually more negatively inclined towards. Uh, the, the argument that this person ha- is a consistent is Christian. Is and
1: has been a Christian. But yeah. those that convert?
2: But conversion is a different thing. I guess uh, the easy rule yeah. of thumb is that if, if you're taking notes out there, if you plan on standing in front of a jury, right. you know, let them know that you're an atheist but that you did convert. Because a conversion leads, leads to lower sentences.
1: The, Even a conversion to atheism? No. Okay. I mean are you insane? (laughs) No, a conversion to Christianity. So Uh,
2: the the rationale though for why somebody who is presented by their lawyer as being always having been a Christian or just a good church-going Christian in general is this is in psychology we call this the black sheep effect. Mm. And that is that we tend to ding our in-group members who screw up even more than out-group members. That is if I'm a Christian and I see that this person had convicted – or had committed a crime and was trying to argue but I'm a good Christian, I'm going to say you're making – you Our make the rest of us look bad, yeah. like so those
1: pedophile priests and everyone else.
2: So they come actually, they come down harder on their own group members because of this. I don't want to be guilt by association with you. Right. But the conversion thing is a different story, uh, and there's actually they, this has been done in a controlled study where they present mock jurors information. Mm-hmm. This is the researcher here is Monica Miller, by the way, and she what she had done is is presented information that the defendant had undergone a conversion since the crime. And in fact, this did mitigate the sentence from hmm. – I think they changed – the more people changed from death penalty to life in prison. So it wasn't oh. as if they said go walk Go the free, streets. right. But simply letting – giving information that this person had somehow found the light of Jesus led to them having more lenient sentences.
1: And I have to say as someone who's very anti-death penalty – that 's not necessarily a bad thing, like if they change their mind from death penalty to life imprisonment well okay that 's a step in the right direction.
2: nope, what irritates me about this is, is that using that as a proxy of somebody 's right. change i mean can, can Can you imagine a situation in which the defense attorney says, well, since being in prison or uh, since you know committing the crime? My client has been studying a lot of philosophy and ethics and mm-hmm. has really become a uh, stoic or cynic in the mode right. of Socrates and you know that person would it wouldn't make a difference at no. all in fact it might even work
1: against them Yeah absolutely But
2: all they have to do is say the magic words Christian conversion and he's yeah. found the light and then you then the gates of leniency are opened. I mean,
1: do you you have statistics on other religious groups like people who convert to Mormonism or to Islam or Hinduism? I mean, a lot of Hindu conversions in prison? Probably not.
2: No, probably. Well, yeah, I I think that's that's the next question and that I don't think the short answer is no, we don't really know enough about that because some of those it's very hard to get a controlled study of having a a defendant who has a different religion. I mean, there's it's I think in prison uh, among African-Americans, there's a lot of a uh, popularity about like Nation of Islam type things right, yeah. like you might remember like Mike Tyson when he was in prison That's converted right. to that. I don't know of any data that shows that with a Christian juror whether that would make a difference positively mm-hmm. because, hey, they're becoming more religious in general or negatively right. as in it's not my religion. I don't know the
1: answer yeah, to that. Yeah, because it's Islam and those those dirty Muslims. But, I, but to a – I'm wondering too if you have a Muslim jury member, how they react to a Christian conversion. I, I suppose it depends on the flavor of Islam and, and everything else.
2: Something uh, uh, in me, from other types of research, wants to say that it might be sort of a gradation thing where, well. It might not be my religion, but if it's a religion, At least I'll, it's a religion. Gi- I'll give – yeah. There is some evidence with things like um, – like in, we talked before about my research on terror management theory Yes, uh, where uh, being presented with another worldview. Let's say if you're a Christian, uh, a non-religious worldview causes your defenses to go up because it's threatening to yours. There's, there's a study recently that was done where the Christian subjects of the experiment actually gave – more of a pass to a Muslim suicide bomber who referred to religion as their motivating factor in their essay that they wrote. Like it was a statement, supposedly right. a statement that the person had made of committing these acts for Allah. The subjects who are Christian actually approved of this person wow. relatively more because they said that their motivation
1: was religious. As opposed to a political or – Right. Wow.
2: So that, that might not generalize to all areas there, but there's something that, that – uh, uh, that says it's not just simply you're not my religion, therefore you're going to go to hell, and I don't like you. Yeah. it might be a case where you know any type of religion is preferred over any type of non-religion,
1: which just tells us once again that we're host.
2: Well, the uh, <laughs> you know this case was made before with things like let's say reproductive rights. I just read a book mm. not long ago by um, Michelle Goldberg. I think she wrote um, the uh, it was called The Means of Reproduction, where she sees a trend now where Fundamentalists. Are, it used to be that that you would know somebody's political views and their, how they would vote on issues just by their whether they're Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, sure, non or you know Muslim. But her argument is is that, um, is that in regards to reproductive rights, fundamentalists in our country are actually making common cause with fundamentalists in other Muslim with nations. with other fundamentalists. If you look yeah. at uh, mm-hmm. voting records on things like population control and like uh, we've talked before about like the uh, HIV efforts with right. Africa with condoms versus abstinence, mm-hmm. that actually um, when Americans and nor Europeans try to say we need to send condoms, we need to do sex ed, yeah. we need to protect, uh, you know, women's rights. That those things get voted down, and uh, by Muslim nations and making cause with American conservatives. Ah. they hate the whole uppity women's rights movements equally, even right. though they come from totally different religions. What matters is that they're religiously conservative. It doesn't matter which religion they are. Right. So I think we need we need more information exactly how religion works in regards to things like. Um, uh recidivism, and, and, and we don't know enough about exactly what works. So some of these things, just assuming that any type of religion is good for inmates and it's going to make them turn their lives around, is it, pretty simplistic. And, yeah. and, and the, pre- the
1: data doesn't bear it out. The data doesn't bear it out. Well, we're going to move on now to our interview with Michael De Uh Michael Wilde is an associate professor of philosophy in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and Associate Director of the Business Ethics Center at the Seedman College of Business at Grand Valley State University. At GVSU, he teaches Eastern Philosophy, Buddhism, Ethics, Ethics in Personal Life, and the Working Class Seminar, uh, which received the 2002 National Award for Excellence in Philosophy programs.
3: The Working Classics Seminar is a very interesting program which teaches philosophy to prisoners. But before we get into some of the specific details of this program, what gave you the inspiration to start it in the first place?
0: There's an author, um, editor, historian in New York City, a guy named Earl Shores, who um, developed a course in conjunction with Bard College that he called the Clemente Course in the Humanities. Wrote a piece in a 1994 Harper's Magazine uh, that I saw handed out to some of my better students. And the gist of the program was whatever else, uh, poor people, people who are incarcerated, uh, folks who, you know, in one way or another have been marginalized, whatever else they might need, uh, welfare assistance, job training, all the usual suspects, Shores' contention was that they needed access to the humanities, what he called the, the tools of reflection. If they were ever going to get uh, you know, a seat at the table, they needed to know at least something about the values of the culture that they that they lived in. And uh, part of his point was to to help people not only come to know their own interests, but uh, then really help them articulate those interests. Uh, he was looking to create a, a, a leveler playing field. One of the first people he talked to about it was a woman in a maximum security prison in upstate New York. And her phrase for it was, the moral life of downtown, that folks, again, who for one reason or another had been outside of the, the mainstream, needed to be able to feel feel like they could play, to navigate bureaucracies, to understand what it was that they were looking at in all the cultural artifacts and signifiers of, of contemporary life. So he started this program uh, with folks who were at homeless shelters, who were coming out of addiction um, centers, mm-hmm. or whatever it might be and it was a struggle. He documented that in the 94 article. We saw it. Uh, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with academia, even though I'm certainly, <laughs> certainly part of it. Uh, I also have a background, though, as a, as a labor organizer, and I just doing my work inside the four walls of, of a classroom has never been as satisfied to me as I'd like. So we thought, well, you know, this is a great idea to test some of what we're up to at Pine right. Valley. Um,
3: Step and, out of the ivory tower for right, once. Right.
0: And so these five students helped me uh, organize it. And uh, we originally started in the Heartside District. The idea was that they would teach classes and the things that they had some expertise in or at least had some passion for to people in the Heartside District. Then one of the, the students who was one uh, of the founders of it uh, had a friend who was incarcerated at the Mesquite Correctional Facility. He sent he sent me a letter saying, "Boy, this is the kind of stuff we need up here." Because in the early 90s, Michigan, like most states, gutted all of their college programs for uh, for prisoners. I met with the warden. To my great surprise, uh, we were up there in about three four weeks, okay. starting classes. They thought they told me later, after we'd been there for a while, that uh, you know they thought we'd last about six months and that mm-hmm. the inmates wouldn't like it and we'd get tired of it. And we were there for 12 years.
3: Wow. <laughs> So I'm I'm trying to imagine in, in my mind what what it's like walking into a prison as a philosophy professor, sitting down with prisoners, and I mean, what do you do? Do you open up Plato? Do you just jump right into the classics? And and how do how do the prisoners on the first day of class? How do they receive this yeah, the, material? F- the first night
0: was um, pretty unforgettable to me. It was an explanation of the program, a, a kind of recruitment. There were about 18 guys stuffed in this little room, and, and ironically enough, it was the psychotherapy room group.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know, this is a sort of brick room, uh, and the mosquito correctional facility is not all that intimidating. It's a medium level uh, place. It was, uh, in fact, it was designed during one of those rare rehabilitation kicks, and mm-hmm. it's kind of designed as a college campus, except with a hell of a lot of barbed wire. Um, so it, it's not uh, that awful to walk into. It's pretty awful once you get to see what actually goes on there and the way folks are treated. Um, but anyway, we're stuffed in this room and I'm I'm talking about the program. I asked them to introduce themselves and one of the guys stood up and said he said, Well, he said, you know, somewhere along the line, he said, I, I think I lost my humanity. That's how I ended up here. He said, I heard this was a course in the humanities. I'm here to get my humanity back. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, you know, we better be we better be pretty good at what we're doing here because they 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 were ready to go. They were taking it seriously right off the bat. Though for some reason I decided to uh, to go ahead and challenge them, play devil's advocate, and you know what? Uh, why should you know? You know most people don't think you deserve this sort of thing. You shouldn't get this sort of thing. I mean, why? Why should we be here doing this? And that engendered a conversation all by itself. And the upshot of that was, you know, 95% of the folks are getting out, going so mm-hmm. prison. They they are coming back. Um, they are going to be our neighbors, co-workers, et cetera. I'm all, I'm all those cliches are true. Um, and taking them seriously and taking some of their needs and aspirations seriously makes sense so yeah we we did open up Plato and in fact uh, one of the early early texts we used was the symposium, and it was beautiful to see what they did it was inspiring to see what they did with it. Uh, they often translated it into their own mm-hmm. language coming out of their own experiences and that was one, that was one of the larger points of the program said you know we weren 't going there just to educate them, and we were going to be educated ourselves or, that's a whole. It's an institution. That's a, that's a you know, cohort of people that most typical Grand Valley students uh, don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the so we there. We are at Grand Valley talking about justice and equality and you know all the kind of political philosophy that you do there. Uh, this was a chance to to see what that looked like, and, mm-hmm. you know, and hear from them. And we we had a woman, young woman, in, in good faith, you know, taught a, a class on the, the Constitution. She was a pre-law student. And they all listened very, very politely uh, when she went through her thing, and then they would uh, they would say that was very nice. Now let us tell you how it actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would go through their cases, and they would go through you know. And then there were people who jail you know in there who were jailhouse lawyers who knew the Fourth Amendment, for example, you know, better than any of us did certainly. Mm-hmm. So we learned a lot.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, the real the real ex, real life experience that they're going to bring to things um, could probably be pretty eye opening for both parties. What do you say to people who, and I don't know if you've gotten this resistance before, but people who would say, you know, this this isn't practical. This is this is head in the clouds kind of stuff. If if you want to give these these guys a, a head start for re-entering society, you put them into some sort of sort of vocational training. You know, get, get them to know a skill that, that can help them find a job. Um, why why get into the classics? Why get into the philosophers? Yeah, it's it's ironic, you know, that
0: most of the folks who ask that question have themselves a pretty good education,
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know, liberal arts or otherwise. Um, they they wouldn't want that for their children, right? You know, why don't you just give them janitorial training? And, and at Muskegon, anyway, they did have a pretty good uh, mechanics program for a while. And I'm not opposed to that. I don't know anybody who would be opposed to that. You know, practical mm-hmm. skills obviously are, are critical uh our problem was with the notion that that's all that they deserve or that that was all that they were capable of mm-hmm. and so that you know it's you know that the best you could do once you get out of here uh no matter what happened to you that brought you to this facility in the first place is that you know maybe you can get a job black topping driveways or you know pushing a broom and you know, now that you're out, you certainly—we certainly don't presume that you would have any interest in being a citizen or participating in the democracy or, you know, in anything that's aesthetic or ethical or anything. I mean, all those presumptions seem to me so so misguided, so mean-spirited mm-hmm. that it's, uh, in some ways, I'm, I'm contemptuous of the question, you know, right. when they ask because you're right, and I, I do, I do hear it.
3: It seems almost elitist to think that prisoners could not relate to these questions, could not learn and value these these discussions. But, but I know from listening to you previously that you've been charged with exactly that, of being elitist, trying to force this knowledge on them. Right. Well, force is an interesting way. Like we're imposing education in some,
0: some fashion. First of all, it's voluntary, of course. Mm-hmm. That, that nobody needs to be there. And once they get they get there, if they decide you know that we are presenting some sort of you know classical education that is oppressive mm-hmm. um in in some way or elitist uh, they they are free to leave um, that that never happens uh, in fact, our experience shows that they know that they need this kind of education mm-hmm. you know, and I would make the distinction between education and training so they're they're gone home for it you know mm-hmm. and, and one of the things I, I love about it, and I've loved teaching, loved about teaching up there, is that just because they're going to know about it, they don't necessarily see it as, as us throwing scraps to them, though. They're highly skeptical. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very critical. It can take us, in, you know, at Grand Valley, I might go through a chapter and say John Stuart Mill, and, you know, any questions? Or a couple, you know, an mm-hmm. hour and on we go. There, if we get through two paragraphs, in two hours. It's a major accomplishment because they're looking up the words. They're challenging every assumption mm. b- behind it. They're trying to hook it up with their own experience. They're asking the question, okay, what practical value would this have? How does this fit with the rest of my life? How does this fit with my aspirations? I mean, I, I've never maybe just with the exception of some graduate school seminars. I don't know that I've ever been with a, a group of more uh, highly critical thinkers. Does that mean that they've got all the
3: background that we would have?
0: No. But, it, but in terms of the seriousness with which they take it, it's inspiring.
3: Why do you think that is? Why are they so willing to question things where maybe, you know, a room full of undergraduates isn't? There might be a couple of responses to that. I,
0: I have a piece coming out next month that um, I, I try to Respond again to this this notion of elitism in, in education. You know, if you sometimes if you're if you're working with, in my capacity as a consultant, if you're working with managers or working with students, there is a kind of default relativism, right? Who's to say what's good? Who's to say what's better? And we're going in teaching at the prison. We're clearly saying, you know, this is a better way of thinking about things. Not any one person right. or school of thought in particular, but in the spirit of inquiry, you know, being broadly educated, having a number of perspectives, that sort of thing, helps you decide what's what's good at the end. So everybody else that I meet, you know, in, the, in the, what they call the free world, r- right, there is that kind of, you know, dismissing this stuff as, as somehow you know, an imposition or suggesting that you're better than they are, that kind of thing. The, the inmates look at you with incredulity if you don't suggest that it's better. I mean, you know, all you have to do is look around. Right. <laughs> you're, you're there, in the prison. It said, "Look, it doesn't get much worse than this. So <laughs> <laughs> anything you have to offer could could certainly be better than this." One of their charges is interesting. They asked me to ask Earl oh, Shores this once. Said, "You know, okay, okay, you know, we'll we'll go with you, and we are interested in this stuff. But he said, you're also asking us to begin to think like the very people who put us hmm. where we are, and whether those people were." part of the justice system or part of the educational system or part of the social work system or part of the economic system. I mean, you know, you can go down the list and some of their claims may not have any merits, but some of it is, well, if this stuff is so good and it, you know, really helps you understand, you know, peace, justice, beauty, et cetera, et cetera, then then how come people like us get treated the way we do?
3: Yeah, they're in a very realist situation, and if we're giving them – pumping them full of ideals, uh, and they're going to be highly sensitive to how those ideals don't always match the reality. How do, yeah. you, how do you answer that when, they, when that question is brought up?
0: It's tough. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons that Epictetus probably comes off as the most popular hmm. author that we've read um,
3: is this and because he was he was a slave himself, and I
0: think part of it is that, and part of it is they're in an environment where they can control very very little. Um, the only mm-hmm. thing they really do have control over is their response to what's going on. And Epictetus, of course, speaks directly to that. And so, in the end, at the end of the day, that feels <coughs> like an an ounce of freedom. Mm-hmm. That if I can get a handle on, you know, come come to separate the things that I have control over and the things that I don't, and and. You know, garner some control over my emotional response to those things. Um, that gives me a leg up on all the other folks in here, whether they're inmates or guards or administrators, uh, who can't mm-hmm. do the same.
3: Philosophy has such a power to change people's lives a lot of times. Just the exercise in thinking about these deeper questions can really reorient oneself to their own life, to their own choices. Can you share any instances of uh, personally in people's lives how you've seen this change them.
0: I can start with one that's sort of amusing offhand and one that's uh, I think a good deal more serious. Um was a guy in the early on in the program, not philosophy proper but uh, Shakespeare and, and some of the uh, especially some of the poetry and uh, one of the Grand Valley students who's since gone on to do a PhD in biomedical ethics. His passion was poetry and Shakespeare. And he was, there was a guy in the class who was uh, kind of just a, a Zen master. I mean, he just had a immediacy about him, you know, and a, a presence about him. But anyway, he was going through all this stuff. It was about the six weeks, six weeks into the class, and uh, going through the sonnets. And he finally, finally, like, it dawned on him. He said, "Oh," he said, "I get it." And we're like, "Oh, great! You know, what do you get? What do you get? Yeah, you know, I see what this is good for." So tell us, tell us what's good for. He said, "Wow! Well, he said I can send one of these sonnets to my wife and one of these sonnets to my mistress, my girlfriend." <laughs> he said, "I'm likely to get about a twenty-five dollar, you know, check from both of them." He said, "That's going to set me up for a long time." <laughs> so that's not exactly what you were looking for, but it was it was where we started. The the dramatic other end of that is um, a guy who was involved in the Kellogg program um, named Mark Keith. Who was there were two natural leaders. He was one of them. Well-educated guy already before he came into our program. Very, very smart guy. And he uh, really took to Epictetus, as we were talking about earlier. And we finished the program. I hadn't seen him in about a year or so, but and he was getting close to his out date. In fact, just a week before um, he was supposed to get out, for a whole bunch of reasons, political and otherwise, in prison, uh, some other group had contracted to take a hit out on him. They didn't want to kill him. They just wanted to hurt him. And he was looking the other way, and a kid came up with a, a shank and put it right through uh, his right cheek and broke a tooth right, right off. Okay, so he's spewing blood, and, you know, the kid's running off. He started to run after him, and, of course, was losing too much blood, so he went back to his, his cell. And he said, the way he tells the story, he's lying under his bunk because he doesn't want the police, the officers, to find him. They know they'll just take him to the hole to, or you know, ship him out for his own quote-unquote protection. So he's trying to hide. In the meantime, he's he's talked to the people he knows in there. He's he's gotten himself a knife, and he's thinking about what he's how he's going to get the kid, what he's going to do, you know. And he, at this point, mm-hmm. he's so angry, you know, he, the fact that he's he's getting out in a week is not, not on his mind. Only revenge. And as he's lying there under the bunk, uh, pretty soon uh, the art of living, uh, Epictetus starts wafting mm. through his head, and he's he's quoting chapter and verse mm. to himself gets up from under the bunk, stitches himself up with dental floss, you know, goes off. The police come and get him. They take him off to the infirmary. He goes into a state of kind of delirium because, of course, par for the course, they don't really do much for him. They say, do you, you know stitch yourself up well enough, you know? Oh, he's, of course, God. lost a lot of blood at this point. Anything. But anyway, the the most dramatic part of that, and he's, he tells the story much better than I do, but, um, you know, in that transition line under his bunk from from the kind of rage that he was feeling... To calmly meditating on the words of Epictetus, um, I think of that as having saved two lives. He's a big, strong mm-hmm. guy. I mean, anybody taking him on would be an idiot or a fool. So he easily could have killed this this guy who attacked him, and which would have ruined his life as well. Again, because he would have been, mm-hmm. you know, sent up for a very long time. Uh, he's out. Uh, he checked, checked his ridge, put the knife away. They did move him to another facility. He's out. He's doing quite well.
1: Excellent.
0: Um, so that's the most dramatic. I mean, there are lots of others that I can think of as a guy in Chicago who uh, ran up against a similar situation. Some kids tried to mug him and uh, instead of taking their heads off, which he also would have been capable of doing, sort of gave him a short lecture and, you know, what the purpose and, and point of an education <laughs> in their lives might have been, and, you know. <laughs> Shores tells these kind of stories too, where you know people start instead of just you know doing self-defeating things, they start union drives and they you know they go back to school and they just really rechannel, mm-hmm. refocus a lot of that that
3: anger. What well, uh, that was another aspect that I'd, I'd forgotten to bring up is that you you teach the prisoners, you give them the opportunity uh, to be philanthropists themselves. That was a uh, one-time thing through the uh,
0: Kellogg Foundation. We had a $200,000 grant. 30000 of that was designated for the prisoners. As far as we know, and I, I can't say this with certainty, as far as we know, it's the first time in U.S. prison history where prisoners were given that large an amount of money um, to engage in philanthropy. And so much of our work for about six to eight months after a number of, uh, of courses was a dis- decision-making. Uh, research into who we would fund, why they would fund them, uh, what work they'd have to do to make sure the money got to them, how to ensure it would be successful—that sort of thing. And the idea was, when when the Kellogg Foundation first came to me, they said, you know, a lot of these people have ended up here because they're not good decision makers. We know that they'll be going back out, especially in the black community. Um, we need strong male mentors, role models, etc. Could you? We like your program. Could you devise an aspect of it that helped people really focus on their decision-making skills? Mm-hmm. And they put their money where their mouth is and, and was, and uh, so that's what we, we used the money for.
3: That's great. And in the end, they got to choose where to distribute that money. Exactly. Right. Um, where did they choose? Uh,
0: there were a number of sort of incremental steps, pilot programs in which they were, they gave $1,000 to uh, Boys and Girls Clubs. Um, mm-hmm. People had geographic interests depending on where they were. So it kind of broke down between Detroit, Grand Rapids, Flint, Saginaw, and Muskegon. Um, and uh there were some folks who were, who were politically savvy and we ended up giving about $1,500 to uh water funds, uh clean water funds in Africa. There was a lot of interest in Africa. And so a number of pilot programs just to, in terms of getting their feet wet, um, schools, materials to poor inner city schools, that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, the bulk of the money went to uh, building computer labs at um, five different centers in those five cities.
3: Excellent. Real quickly for um, some of my listeners who may not be familiar with Epictetus or the, or the Stoics, could you could you give a, a real quick background on what are some of these these philosophies that you guys explore and and, and the backgrounds to them?
0: Uh, uh, well, certainly uh, the Greeks, Epictetus, um, many of the guys. Fifty percent of the folks in Muskegon are people of color. Uh, usually about half the guys are uh, African American, and. So they, I've been educated to include more sources from Africa and Egypt. Mm-hmm. I think the, along with uh, Epictetus and, and the Stoics, that that notion that um, you know ultimately one has control over oneself, if not much else. Um, and there's a certain kind of forbearance that that allows one to live a good life um, once one comes to to accept that. Along with that, the the other two other groups maybe especially important, influential in their lives. One um, literary folks, everybody from Toni Morrison to you know Richard Wright, um, mm-hmm. um, pamphlet of, of Frederick Douglass, and, and others, and then uh, the existentialists. Okay. Uh, we've taught maybe I don't know a handful of courses in one kind of existentialism or another. Everything from the Krishna Kierkegaard on, on one hand to Sartre, you know, and that's had a profound impact on a lot of guys, especially the, a lot of guys who were there for life, right? Already a, a very deep, intuitive, experiential grasp of the absurdity <laughs> of of life, and then so what do you what do you do with that? And I, I love what some of the guys have done, which is to use. The materials that, that we've that we brought in, some of the conversations we've had, um, to begin to mentor the guys, the, the lifers, mentoring people who will be back, going back home and creating meaning for themselves by doing huh. that.
3: That's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that, the, the mentoring process. Do you think the people who go through this program, do they then become role models? Does this go out into the rest of the prison?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I asked that too. I've asked that of the administrators and of the, the guys in the prison. They have all responded enthusiastically and without qualification, yes. In fact, I even got a letter to that effect from one of the assistant wardens. Uh, In Muskegon once saying, you know, we – again, we never thought that this thing would last and two, we certainly didn't anticipate the effects it would have throughout
3: Hmm.
0: the facility in that one, uh, the guys who have gone throughout the the program themselves have become calmer individuals and, and more thoughtful and bring that to everything that they do in the prison. But secondly, that the sheer number of people in the facility who now want to be part of the program in one way or the other, that's grown tremendously and so that those guys who are in the program end up being mentors. It also does engender, uh, to be fair, some some jealousy and some resentment and we've had mm-hmm. to deal with that uh, as well. And that apparently extends all the way to Lansing as I found out. It.
3: <laughs> oh, really? So,
0: well, I, I said we were there for 12 years when we started. Um, I just found out that uh, – one or more of the powers that be has decided we should not go back um, because we were quote never officially approved, and I love that, and people wonder why people leave the state of Michigan. Huh. We were there for twelve years, we garnered all sorts of publicity publicity sorry um, you know we won a national award oh we got a major grant from the Kellogg Foundation
3: uh, we had right up in the new york Times right up
0: uh, in the time I mean all kinds of things. We had probably over 600 inmates go through the program. We had, you know, 80, 90 Grand Valley faculty and students in, involved. It wasn't really a secret to anybody, right? And now all of a sudden, somebody's decided that uh, it wasn't. Uh, if, in fact, you know, I, and I love this, is maybe my favorite part of it, we were actually given the Volunteers of the Year Award uh-huh. uh, about, uh, was about three years ago that, that our organization was, you know, we were the opinion we were what they wanted up there, and now all of a sudden we're unofficial and what at the moment anyway can't go back
3: <laughs> um, i i don 't know if 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 you feel free to to speculate on this or if if you feel open to talk about this but do you is that the real reason do you think do you think people harbor resentment against this program for some other reason
0: i th- i think there are i mean I, I, we've we've had to fight with um various administrators and and d o c personnel from time to time over the years, but we've had real champions on the ground too um, at the facility who helped Mm -hmm. clear those obstacles out of the way. I know that there are a lot of guards who who deeply resent the program and uh, wish it would go away. Why? Why do you think? I think part of it is, has, you know, they they have their, some of them. Some of them are terrific. I've, I've got to say that I've been very supportive. Others not. Um, but you know, they use phrases like the, "these guys we're teaching are the cream of the crap" and you know all those sorts of oh. things. So they have a they have an interest in dehumanizing right. these these folks, and anything like this that uh, promotes their humanities, you know, as, as we started with um, makes their job they think harder to do. I I think it actually makes their job easier. They they, they see it as these folks are, they're undeserving. Um, They, um, you know, this is going to make them uppity in some way, um, harder to control. Uh, Why should they get it when, you know, it's so hard for people on the outside to get it, uh, all those kinds of reasons. So, you know, our recidivism rate is right up there, I think, with the the best of, of any programs across the country. You know, I, I'm in contact with a number of the guys who have gone through the program and are now, now out. Um, you know, the Grand Valley students have gone on to do wonderful things. It's, it's you know, this is going to sound a little bit like, you know, woe is me or poor me, that sort of thing. And I don't mean it to be, but it's uh, it's a little like no good deed goes unpunished. feels huh. feels a little like that.
3: <laughs> is, is, there, um, is there an effort to get the program... Up and running again. I mean, if if the if there will be, I have to take if that. Out the excuse follow. was red tape. I mean, is it just a matter of then going well, through it again? That's a good
0: question. That was one of the it, when they sent me the notice that the uh, you know we were no longer welcome. They didn't say you know, and here's how you apply to become official or hmm. or anything like that. And it's the program hasn't been any secret. I mean, we were shut down once before by folks in Lansing, so it's not like it was off their radar. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that that was six years into the program, and we and we went for another six years. So. I, I have no idea. Right? That's, that's kind
3: of... Well, I, I certainly hope uh, <laughs> it doesn't that,
0: cost anything. I mean, it doesn't
3: cost the state a dime to do all right because it's all it's all um, funded through different foundations, correct? Right. Before we wrap up this interview, there is a to me what I find a very humorous postscript to this uh, this whole story. This program worked so well with prisoners that you decided to take it to another population. That is in serious need of moral education. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, decide m- to my, my, my way of framing it. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't decide to. I, um,
0: what you're talking about is uh, local businesses and <laughs> yeah. they, um, consulting with their, their managers or other people in their employ. And I didn't. I'm a completely accidental consultant. I, I didn't okay. certainly didn't set out to do that. Um, Jeff Kuzi owns Cousy Company in town. Heard about what I was doing, got progressively more intrigued by it, has – had people in, in – he does his own manufacturing. Thought that his culture was not uh, everything it could be to say the least.
3: By his culture, he, you mean corporate corporate business the, uh, culture. Right.
0: The, the culture of his company right. was not what he wanted it to be and wondered if we could work the same sort of magic uh, there that we were re- working in prison. To be fair to my critics though, um, the way it came off when the New York Times piece was written – and it was on another another company, not not Jeff's, but working with Jeff's left, led to a, a couple of others. Um, you know, that again, it, it smacks of a kind of elitism, right? That those of us who know, we're going to go in and change for the better. These poor working slobs, of course, who are living mm-hmm. in darkness. And so I've been called, you know, a, a number of unflattering names for, you know, having the, the hubris to think that, you know, somehow their lives can be uplifted by what philosophy or poetry have to offer. (laughs) um, I'm used to that criticism at at this point, uh, and we plot ahead anyway.
3: To to be fair, I think the person who most strongly criticized you for that, uh, if, if we're thinking of the same person, um, was more offended that some liberal professor was teaching a bunch of republicans oh. <laughs> how to be more moral <laughs> i definitely saw some political angst in your there, critics there. there
0: there might have been some of that <laughs> some of that too but um but yeah yeah it's uh, it's funny i've been probably consulting for gee, i don't know it's eight or nine years now um Really? Doing critical thinking skills, improved communication, that that kind of thing. I mean, I think of that as eminently practical,
3: Mm -hmm. really,
0: just being able to parse a problem and you know, have enough perspectives at hand to to figure out what one might do profitably in the face of that. And at least there are a couple of business people anyway who seem to think the same thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and that's that's great. Apparently, um, you know, you would think the stereotype is that employers wouldn't invest in anything that wouldn't help the bottom line. But uh, but as you say, some of these these skills they're 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 not as easily quantified. But uh, but they're very relevant.
0: When I talk to employers now, over and over again, what they say is what they see missing from people coming out of universities, even at the master's level, really are the critical thinking Mm -hmm. skills, Uh, what another CEO in town calls synthetic intelligence, the ability to take lots of disparate uh, information and and put that together together in some you know, way that, that significantly adds to mm-hmm. what they might do, the kinds of decisions that they might make. Um, you know, it's not just me. I, I imagine you would agree with this, that um, one of the reasons philosophy is seen as critical prerequisite, say for law school or, mm-hmm. or other professions that demand a high level of critical thinking skills and, and articulation is that we actually do provide that, I think, to a greater degree than the most other disciplines because mm-hmm. the material we work with is so complex.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's even more than that. I, I, mean, I remember what got me interested in philosophy was, was the, the kind of the spirit of the person who is so committed to truth that they were willing to subject their own ideas to scrutiny. Uh, and you wouldn't want to cling to a view that couldn't, couldn't survive that test. Yes. Uh, it's,
0: it's, it's well said. It, it also reminds me why there are so few people <laughs> because moral humility is in, is in short supply, and, and I suppose it it's, it's demonstrates a lack of humility to suggest that one is humble, but I, I think the process you describe is certainly a humbling one.
1: Okay, and let's move now to our props and shit list. This is where we give praise to those who deserve it and heap scorn on those who need it. Uh, props this week. None. Uh, none. I, I got no, nothing. Okay. <laughs> I got nothing. Props are always so much harder to come up with. I know.
2: All right, here's what. I'll, I'll just come up with this one on the fly. Just uh, riffing it. Okay. You might be um, familiar with the work of Harvey Picard. Oh, yeah. Who just died this week. Which is not a props. No, but I think that as a as a – tribute to his life and what he did to, to promoting crankiness everywhere right. and, and uh, his own sense of, uh, of fidelity to his – whatever you want to say about him. Uh, Harvey Pekar had a sense of, of values and he was true to his principles and uh, he stuck up for average people by portraying them in comic books That's right. or graphic novels if yeah. you want to be – Yeah,
1: he has, he has a wonder, wonderful graphic novel. I think it's called Our Cancer Year. It's yeah, about that, him, was, that him was one of his – yep, mm-hmm. Um, American Splendor is awesome. Uh, the the film with Paul Giamatti, and, oh my gosh, it's it's absolutely worth checking out. Harvey Pekar, it, it it really is a. a A loss.
2: But but I guess just thinking of a props, it's good that he was around. Absolutely. uh, Well done, sir. Well played. Let's move to the more numerous uh, shit list. Yeah, yeah. Revisiting Uganda again. Not content to be just having their efforts within our own borders. Again, the evangelicals, uh, we've mentioned this before, have sort of viewed their uh, uh, third world nations in South America and Africa as their own little project. Mm -hmm. And we've talked before about how they have done – Uh, horrible things in terms of supporting anti-gay measures
1: uh, and anti-gay measures to the extent of homosexuality is a capital crime Um, and not
2: reporting your gay buddy uh, that is also a crime or having
1: AIDS and having sex with someone is a capital crime I mean uh, serious stuff here
2: so this is not really anything new but just more of the same yep
1: yeah because previously we talked about this in the um, a lot of U.S. pastors were kind of distancing themselves from this. Um, people like Rick Warren, Rick Warren um, who had been very close with the Ugandans, were all of a sudden saying, yeah, but we didn't we didn't mean for it to go this
2: I just far. found out that Rick World doesn't refer to him. <laughs> You click on a thing and you're sent to the, to the purpose-driven life, I thought. That's what Rick that, meant. Uh, uh,
1: that, that would be more insidious. They distanced themselves and now it seems that nothing really has changed. We've nope. got, got an article here from NPR. A Ugandan uh, pastor, evangelical minister, of course, Martin Sempa, he's, uh, he's pushing this anti-homosexuality bill. And the Canyon Ridge Christian Church in Las Vegas, a megachurch with some 6,000 congregants each week, is paying Mr. Sempa.
2: Is there, is there a program entitled Semperify?
1: Oh, Oh, that's good. Wow. Um, Kevin Oder, senior pastor there. These names are perfect. You, you, it's like uh, out of Dickens or something. <laughs> it is. Kevin Oder, the senior pastor for Canyon Ridge Christian Church, says of Sempa... His heart is not to kill people. He's a pastor of the gospel that believes in redemption, and his heart is to redeem people. So by threatening to kill homosexuals, he's helping to redeem them from their awful lifestyle. In
2: general, I think that the American churches are trying to slime out of this by saying that they don't support the more extreme things, but that they're no. trying to influence the person withdrawing entirely. They think that they can retain some positive influence by still funneling money and trying to say, OK, don't talk about the killing of the Right,
1: goddess. As we like to call it around here, a Chris Mooney approach. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't
2: open that can. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly, again, just imagine
1: if the tables were turned
2: and, let's say, a humanist or secular group had supported anybody around the world doing anything that had was connected in any, any way with something negative bad. negative You could imagine yeah. that we would be held responsible for not only the positive things but the negative things as well, just yeah. like we are with eugenics and Nazis. Uh, and that, you know, if you're giving money to people, uh, I'm sure that this minister could have an influence if he threatened to cut off the purse string. Right,
1: right. and And we have – From Again, from this article on NPR, Oder says his church has a heart for homosexuals. He notes that Canyon Ridge participates every year in a march for people with AIDS. They actually march on the people with AIDS, I I believe. Um, And for the past two years, the church opened its campus for HIV testing day. He says, quote, we love everybody, including people with AIDS. There are two things, how you got AIDS and that you have AIDS. And that you have AIDS is a matter of compassion the church should be compassionate for people with aids meaning how you got yes. aids
2: if you're to blame if you're one of those innocent hemophiliacs with the blood transfusion you're good to go right but if you're one of those gays no i mean clearly uh, you know what's happening here is that uh, the broader picture is that a lot of christians and conservatives in this country are frustrated by their inability to have any you know policy changes mm-hmm. because of those cranky liberals and the and the humanists That's and right. seculars with their crazy church and state separation. So really what they're doing is a proxy battle by operating in these other countries. So yeah. They can funnel money to third world nations. And Do they just feel good that
1: homosexuals are being persecuted somewhere? I, like
2: Maybe not here. doesn't
1: have to be my backyard, but hey, at least the gays are – They might are... have
2: their run of Disneyland, but the gays are going to be – they <laughs> should tread lightly in Uganda and, you know, territory uh, I, another example I think of American groups uh, inappropriately trying to to meddle in foreign affairs having a negative effects, and this one is with tax free status there uh, there was an article in New York Times recently about the, um, about the influence that American evangelicals are having in the holy land in Israel by funneling money to not only things like, you know, uh, in general social welfare, but specifically the money ends up with questionable purchases for settlements that are illegal in the territories like the West Bank.
1: Which is really the big problem – one of the big problems right now is it's, this: the settling in areas where they're not supposed to be settling this disputed land um, and we have here – americans who are funneling money to these causes now
2: no matter what you think about the israeli palestinian situation i would argue that one thing that should be a point of agreement is religious claims about who should have the holy land and and which part is you know because god gave something yahweh gave it to the people are irrelevant
1: that's step one and i don't think it'll ever happen
2: you can favor the palestinians you can favor the israelis and peace talks about what specific piece of territory goes where but i think I think what listeners should come together on is that if somebody's making a claim in America that they should collect money because we want God to stay God the, yeah, yeah the Israeli hands because of a biblical claim, that has no place in political discussion.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess that's where I always run into trouble with this argument because I keep forgetting that. I keep looking at it logically and saying, OK, who actually should be here as opposed to who did God say should be here?
2: Yeah, well, that's. A, but they raise money, like we've talked before in the show about John Hagee, the pastor who yep. got into trouble uh, a while back, and then there was the withdrawn endorsement of John McCain. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, the, what he uses as his rallying cry for his parishioners to send in money is that they, you know, that because God gave the land to Israel, they shouldn't retreat not one inch. In uh, any land for peace swap. But what they found is that many of these uh, – m- much of the funding and here's the, the – the polit- another pr- political connection is, is that these are just like any other charitable donation tax-exempt. So essentially right. you could be undermining American foreign policy and have a tax-exempt status for your charitable donations. And some of this money was going when they looked into where the funds were going. It was not just for food or shelter or clothing. It was to things like guard dogs. Bulletproof vest, oh. rifle scopes.
1: Innocuous things like that. Probably the same rifle scopes with the Bible passages on them.
2: Oh, yeah, that would be a good one there. And so um, and so there were many uh, wealthy backers who even uh, – Israeli citizens now who don't care that the Americans are promoting this because of their religious beliefs. They just right. like the support. Yep. I think that this story to me is a good shitless candidate because we have people like – even major political candidates like Huckabee, Mike Huckabee, and Sarah mm-hmm. Palin there, mm-hmm. and John Hagee, that's, that they agree with this policy that Israel was, you know, is on land that God gave to them, and they, that we should do everything we can to support that.
1: Right. Right. Oi. Uh, okay, let's wrap it up because we cannot, we can't skip this story. Um, we have ourselves a stranger than fiction. Pakistan, number one in the world in pornographic internet searches. I mean, as if that weren't a good enough start, but uh, it gets better. Uh, Here, an article from The Courier. What kind of things do they search for, Dave? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. Of course, Pakistan is a very strict... Muslim country
2: and therefore pious and uh, and I would assume that they would be interested in things on the internet like you know religious texts
1: yeah and... exactly, yes, yes how uh, how do I find east you know th- those sorts of questions no, 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 uh, Pakistan ranks number one, and this is according to to Google, uh, Pakistan has ranked number one in searches per person for horse sex, donkey sex, rape sex, child sex, dog sex since two thousand and five. And um, and this is really – this is the phrase that I just can't – I can't get past. Country has also been number one in searches for camel sex, which gives new meaning to the term humping, I think. Oh, boy. Yeah. You know there's something wrong with your life when you're, you're searching for actual camel toe. Oh, boy. So. You've been waiting all morning for that. I, you know what? Credit to my wife for feeding me those, actually. Thanks, was, Thanks Chris.
2: But <laughs> yeah, so I could just, the image to mind comes of like, that comes to my mind is like, bored guys sitting around drinking coffee in the internet cafe, like, you know, just Google search and just, you know, typing in those terms that wouldn't be the thing that maybe would come to my mind or your mind, but mm-hmm. uh, apparently that's, The uh, free association Pakistani style. That's right. But it gets even better for those for a local connection. That is now, Dave. You would assume that the most uh, sex searches and and pornography usage on the internet would be with the most uh, godless and and licentious corners of the country, like uh, you know the cities New York, San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. But turns out, what uh, what is the highest pornographic uh, use in the United States region?
1: Utah. No way. Yes, the Mormon capital of the world, Utah is. Uh, Utah loves porn.
2: Well, I, you know, I'm always trying to formulate grand theories here, but I think that we've, if you put together the whole Pakistan and the Utah thing, I guess this sort of leads to the whole repression
1: hypothesis. Y- you think? Yeah. Yeah. The, the
2: more you put the lid on in everyday life, and the, uh, that uh, it's, you know, when you're sitting home alone in your darkened room with the internet on, right, it's gonna come out somewhere. Y-
1: you got to see a boob somewhere.
2: You know, know, thanks, Utah and the Mormon Church, for telling California what to do in Proposition 8 with the
1: the moral gaze.
2: And I'm sorry. You go back to your internet pornography searches now.
1: Yeah. The hypocrisy just never stops, does it? So that's all for this week. Until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, gripes, and suggestions to doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website at www.doubtcast.org.
2: New topic. Should Jeremy come back on the show? (laughs) Vote. Yes? No.
1: Uh, Find us and friend us on Facebook.com slash DoubtCast. Follow us on Twitter.com slash DoubtCast. Uh, We have a store, Zazzle.com slash DoubtCast. Buy some nifty shirts.
2: Including the Dr. Professor Galen version shirt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Show your support. Uh, If you like the show, write us a review on iTunes, or best of all, share the show with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.